Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. Welcome to 2019. In our latest episode, I'm having a conversation with Ryan Bernston. He is currently in the midst of a all 50 state road trip. He's having conversations with changemakers, community leaders, people who are getting involved from across the aisle to make positive things happen. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? I really admire what Ryan is trying to do and I'm thrilled to have him in our first episode of the new year. So welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me, Audrey. What of the 50 states are you currently in? Well, I'm currently in my hometown of Rockford, Illinois, formerly the third most miserable city in America, according to Forbes' list of miserable cities, but we're down <laughs> from two, so we're making progress. Uh, I'm currently relaxing after doing 21 states in the past two months, and I'm going to start hitting the road in Mobile, Alabama on the 2nd of January, so about to launch back in. Awesome. Before we talk about how this project came to be and how you and I connected. I would love if you could just share with us a little bit about your background and what kind of led you to this point. I am from a Rust Belt town in the Midwest, sort of one of those places that people talk about with new importance after the 2016 election. And so I've always been able to have difficult conversations politically with people who disagree with me because we're a very split town in my upbringing. And then I went away to Northwestern University in Chicago and I studied theater and screenwriting. And after that, I moved to Los Angeles and I worked as a playwright and a screenwriter in LA and New York. During my time out there, I realized that I have this real interest in politics. In the postgraduate abyss, I really wanted to do something that made a difference. So I started working on the Hillary Clinton campaign in Iowa for the caucus. And I stayed on and off with the campaign until the bitter end in Florida. This interest in politics continued to intersect with my interest in writing and entertainment. And I continued working as a playwright after the 2016 election. I continued to write plays that went up in New York and Scotland. And currently, I'm a master's student at the University of Oxford writing workshop in the UK. What I've been working on there is mostly trying to find a way to bring political ideas to mass consumer markets through entertainment, through writing, through plays, movies, and currently this project, 50 States of Mind, will be released as a book and a podcast. So trying to find ways to make complex ideas digestible and interesting to a mass market. How have you put this trip together? Because the logistics involved, it's dizzying to think about. And what are some of the things that you've learned along the way? I'm going to disappoint you with the answer because it's half diligent organization, me reaching out to mayors and governors and city council members and state senators ahead of time, you know, planning in advance. And the other half is this thing I like to call the flow, which anyone who travels is familiar with. And it's the thing that happens when you kind of take a leap of faith and the journey kind of reveals itself to you. It sounds kind of mystic, but I'll go to a town. And sometimes no one has set up a meeting with me. And what I'm trying to do is stay with someone in every community. And that's been amazing. So 21 states stayed with 21 families who actually live in the community. And what they do is they put me in touch with people. 
And once I'm in touch with the first person and tell them about the project, you could be someone working at a, an arts collective. They can say, oh, my brother is a state senator. Let me call him and you guys can get dinner. And then I'll talk to the state senator and he'll say, oh, I actually know uh, the governor's assistant in Louisiana. Uh, maybe you should talk to him when you go to Louisiana. And it's become this amazing patchwork of people referring me to other people, which is the kind of momentum that I wanted from this project. And I realized that when you allow people to see their communities as something that an outsider is taking interest in, they're very quick to want to show the best of what's going on. I can really relate to the flow, both in traveling for fun and also traveling for work. When you're meeting people who don't know you and are connected to you through a friend of a friend, how often is kind of the political discourse or political divide that we're kind of experiencing more on a macro level, you know, is that affecting your conversations? You know, the thing that has amazed me about this trip is I haven't talked to anyone that I feel like I truly fundamentally disagree with. And that's not to say that I haven't talked to a wide variety of people from different backgrounds and different religious beliefs, political beliefs. There's this consensus in the country that I think is actually real and you're able to tap into it if you approach people with a spirit of openness and listening and learning. And even when I go to rural places in West Virginia, I've had conversations with people um, who are Republicans, who I actually fundamentally agree with a lot of things on, even though I worked for Hillary Clinton. And it's really seeing people talking about things that matter in their community that allows this openness and discourse to develop because the most hot button issues in our society right now are on a national level. If you throw Trump in someone's face immediately and you stake your line in the sand, you're going to get into an argument. But when you talk about things on a local level and you talk about issues affecting people, they're so specific that you can't attribute big national controversy with it. And I'm surprised constantly by how much I'm learning from people, both in rural, suburban, and urban communities across all 50 states, that I'm realizing that I'm starting to know what I don't know. That ability to check my idea that I know everything or I have everything figured out at the door allows us to have really interesting conversations that eventually I can bring in my point of view and maybe learn something or maybe enlighten a point of view that maybe someone hadn't thought of. There was a poll that PBS put out last week that said about 60% of the country is optimistic about the next year ahead. And the reasons for their optimism were primarily family and jobs, which are things that are much more local and part of your everyday community life. Those who were pessimistic about the year ahead, 64% of them cited politics for the reason of, of pessimism. And I, I would definitely say in my experience, getting to know people from small towns in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina, that is very much something that resonates when you focus on the politics and vitriol that, that can lead to feelings of pessimism, unfortunately. But when you think about what you're optimistic about or what connects us as people, it's those human relationships, family, the people you work with, the people you spend your time with. Those kinds of connections I think we all have in common, we can all understand. That's a language that no matter you know whether you have an R or a D next to your name, those things kind of supersede that part of life. I completely agree. And I'm thinking about Fort Wayne, Indiana right now. It's a 
conservative state. But when the refugee crisis hit in 2015, if you think about refugees coming in nationally, people think about people coming over the border, the security of their country, and they can kind of put their back up a little bit. But the mayor of Fort Wayne was telling me that so many people in a pretty conservative city were coming to him and saying, we need to let these refugees into our community because they could picture it right at home. And refugees coming into your community and becoming a part of a known quantity is somehow different in people's minds than people coming into your country, your homeland, your, your borders. I think of that a lot. When people can picture things on a micro level, they tend to be more human about it. I, I see exactly what you're saying. And I, I think that sense of bipartisanship exists when you have people in your community. And that's why mayors, I think, are so effective. Mm -hmm. The mayor of Wheeling, West Virginia, was saying to me, there are people that disagree with me. I, I'm a Democrat, even though in Wheeling, West Virginia, they run without an R or a D next to their name. People kind of know that he is a Democrat. People can't get mad at him for making decisions they disagree with because they see him at the grocery store and they know that he's not going to try to mess up the town that he has to live in. He's just trying to do his best for the town, even if he's making decisions that people don't agree with. And Incidentally, he passed an LGBT protection bill in the town, which was very well received. But the big hot button issue is trying to make the one-way streets two-way streets. So sometimes the controversial things aren't even the things that you'd expect. Sometimes the really hot button issues are, is uh, a car going to go one way down the street or two cars going to go two separate ways? So That's interesting. That's really interesting. Can you reflect on one or two conversations you've had that have just completely opened your eyes or completely changed your perspective on an issue? Yeah, I think maybe the most quote unquote controversial thing I've done is I went to a Trump rally the day before the midterm elections and I was sort of expecting to show up and kind of float around between people and ask the really hard hitting questions. But I showed up at this rally wearing a MAGA hat, wearing a leather jacket and a flannel, trying to really blend in. I ended up hanging out with these four moms, probably about 50-ish years old. And I learned so much from them because I didn't just interview them for five minutes and then run away to someone else. They unmasked me because we took a photo together and they tried to tag me on Facebook and they saw all this Hillary Clinton stuff on my profile. And I hadn't been explicit about the fact that I worked for Hillary or that I'm not necessarily a Trump supporter. And they embraced me with open arms. They said, baby, we're so glad you're here. We want to show you all the love at this rally. You stick with us. And so I spent about five hours with them. It's not the type of thing where you show up and Trump's there and then you leave. It's a, you have to wait. It's like a very, very long rock concert. <laughs> Some people are uh, throwing t-shirts around. They're playing memory from cats. One thing I learned is these people are veterans. Two people in my group were veterans. And they started talking about the VA and the military. And I realized that I don't know anything about these uh, institutions. I don't know very many people who are, are veterans or in the military. What they told me as far as what they're happy about with the VA reforms and how they feel like they're being treated as members of our society who are veterans and part of the military, I got to take their word for it because they're the experts. Then I found out that a few of them are former Democrats, voted for Bill Clinton. And part of the reason that they are so fired up about Trump is because they have been told by family and friends that they shouldn't be supporting Trump, that they shouldn't be there. And one woman was telling me that her best friend from childhood no longer speaks to her, won't answer her calls, won't answer her Facebook messages. And these people 
I think, double down on the Trump support a little bit because it's a community where they're not judged, where they're not called racist or sexist, which was rich to this group of women because they're like, you know, how can we be sexist? We're all women. We're, <laughs> we're making a choice and other people are telling us to change and we're sticking with our guns and what we believe in. And so it was a really interesting education for me in that respect. And it was also an interesting education because after I left the rally and had a really nice time, they bought me French fries. We had a nice talk about things that weren't political. I put a few things out on social media about how surprised I was, how civil and fun and diverse the crowd was. It was predominantly white, but there were people who were Puerto Rican, Hasidic Jews, there were black people there. And I put out some information on social media about how I felt. And I was immediately descended upon by my urban white liberal friends started lecturing me about how I was normalizing Trump and how this was unacceptable. It was this education for me that made me feel empathy for the people at the Trump rally that, you know, if you express support, which I wasn't even doing, and all of a sudden people are calling you all these names, it got my back up a little bit. I was like, you know, why can't I go do this? Who are you to tell me that these are bad people when you're not even out there doing the research? And I think there's a real feeling with these people who are at these Trump rallies that they're being called these names, they're being called stupid, but these people are actually living in the community and seeing the effects of these certain policies or seeing things that maybe people in big cities aren't seeing. That was one adventure that I keep coming back to. The hard part wasn't going to the rally and the hard part wasn't dealing with the people who were you know, rabid at the Trump rally. It was actually the people that are my friends who gave me the hardest time. Mm. Talking to mayors has been probably the most interesting part of the journey because I talked to Mayor Marty Walsh, who's the mayor of Boston. And one thing he said to me is, mayors steal from each other. There aren't Republican ideas or Democratic ideas. All these mayors get together. They kind of compare notes about what's going on in their cities, what new initiatives they're putting in place, and they steal from each other. It's not partisan being a mayor. Cleaning up trash isn't a Democratic or Republican issue. Implementing affordable housing isn't a Democratic or Republican issue. These are issues that need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed soon because the proof is in the pudding in the community. If you're not doing your job as a mayor, it's very clear, and you can't be ideological about issues that are right in your backyard. You know, I've talked to people in mayoral or city council positions in big cities like Boston, but then also small towns like Milledgeville, Georgia, which is a really small town in Georgia that used to have the largest insane asylum in the United States that shut down a few years ago and put the economy of the town into a depression. This was a, an insane asylum the size of a large college campus. And when that facility closed, it did really devastating things to the city. But I showed up in the city and there are people saying, we've lived here our whole life. We need to find a way to bring a different economy here because we've lived here our whole life. Our grandparents have lived here their whole life. We want to make this downtown a place that our kids can be proud of. The mayor of Greenville, South Carolina, put out a, a bullet point of some things that show that a downtown is making progress. And these 
towns are studying each other. Milledgeville is studying Greenville, South Carolina and saying, okay, the first step is to get people living above shops downtown. And once people start living these apartments above shops, they're going to start expecting fun bars, fun restaurants. They put in this place called Bollywood Taco, which is a Indian infused taco restaurant. I ate there and it was delicious. And I think they think that once people see that there are fun things going on downtown, then they're going to be attractive to businesses. And then those businesses are going to want to come in because they know that it's going to be a nice place to live for people. And then that's going to bring in economic opportunity. So it's actually really interesting to see that there's this blueprint that different towns follow and that it's a lot more about shared ideas on the local level. What experiences to unpack? That's just a really fascinating account of some of the kind of conversations that you have had so far. When you were talking about attending the Trump rally and then the kind of backlash you received from humanizing some of the people that you met and conversed with, how did you respond to the backlash? Because my perspective is somewhat unusual in that I have spent the bulk of my career working in Republican politics and am right of center, but I am saddened by a lot of the discourse that I think is really divisive that is kind of rampant in this climate. And that's largely what caused me to kind of step back. But at the same time, when we have a culture and a climate that makes it really difficult to acknowledge the humanity of those that disagree with us. And I see this on both sides in having conversations with with some on the left who just speak so poorly of the half of the nation that voted for Donald Trump. I mean, people voted for him for such myriad reasons. But there's a degree of condescending tone that I really think then perpetuates and force causes people to double down their support on the right. And the conversation that you had with the women you met at the march seems to really kind of fall in lockstep with that kind of takeaway. How did you respond to criticism that you experienced on the left? And what kinds of things do you think we can do to start tackling this when you couple it with mayors and local leaders who are tackling in a totally nonpartisan way, like the mayor of Boston said, we steal from each other. It's these ideas are about solutions. They're not about hot button issues to get us to be divisive. Hmm. I think you really hit the nail on the head there. When I first got my uh, feedback (laughs) from people via social media, people were saying things from, you're privileged, you're not transcending any amazing lines, you're being really self-congratulatory, thank goodness your social media following isn't bigger, you could have done some real damage. And at first I felt really bad because I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I've betrayed my, you know, liberal background. I have perpetuated this hate. And I, I kind of got into this real funk. And then I kind of started to talk it out. And I thought, okay, you know, I'm sorry if I've offended anybody, especially these people from privileged backgrounds who now live in liberal urban areas. But I don't know what I don't know. And I can read the news and get my information that way. I can look at what people are sharing on Twitter and Facebook from the Washington Post or Vox or Huffington Post. And that is what can shape my view of the world. I can watch Fox News. I can read the Wall Street Journal and that can be what shapes my view of the world. But I need to know what's really going on, what people are really thinking. And if my day-to-day life revolves living in New York City, going to bar classes on the Upper West Side, going out on the Lower East Side, 
I don't think I'm ever going to see people and their point of view as real unless I actually go and look people face to face. And one of the things right now is people like to solve their problems via social media. The kind of harsh feedback I was getting for people, if someone had sat down with me and had this conversation about what I was doing and why it was upsetting to them, I think we would have been able to come to some sort of consensus. I had a phone call with a friend. We talked about the rally and she's very progressive, lives in LA. She heard everything I said about the rally and then was delighted that I did it. And we left on a really, really good note. But then when I started putting things out via social media, all of a sudden she started correcting me saying, you shouldn't put this out. This isn't right. And it made me realize if I'm trying to digest complex ideas via social media, for some reason, it takes away the humanity expressing the ideas as a living, breathing human person. Whereas on the phone, we were able to have some sort of discourse as far as how you fix these things, people got to get out there. People have to leave their little bubbles. They need to get off of social media. Okay, you want to live in a big city, big liberal city, fine, but you got to get outside of your socioeconomic bubble. You got to start volunteering. You got to start meeting people from different backgrounds because once you see how other people live in this country, you're going to meet people from different backgrounds and you're going to start to exercise that muscle of empathy and I think part of the reason that I was able to roll with those people at the Trump rally was because up to that point, I'd been meeting so many different kinds of people and I'd approached all of them without judgment because that's what the point of this trip was. A lot of people right now are distracted from the fact that we live in a slightly unfair economy. Our wages aren't going up. There are, there's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of people that aren't able to afford the luxuries that they would have been able to afford 40 years ago. And I think the more we're at each other's throats and not questioning the systems that we exist in, and I think this, is, this goes for Democrats and Republicans, I don't think anyone's happy with the way society is set up right now. But the more we focus on critiquing our fellow liberals or fellow conservatives or family members, the farther we get away from actually solving the issues. So if you're not happy with the way things are, don't critique people on Facebook. Go volunteer, post about volunteering on Facebook. Go post something that you have done tangibly. And that's activism right there because you're making a visible difference. I don't care how many petitions you sign, how many articles you share. That's not activism. You want to walk the walk. You don't want to just talk the talk or post the post or DM the DM. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that living in the real three-dimensional world and the richness of those experiences flex far more muscle than anything you can do staring at a screen passively or reactively. I'm kind of fascinated with this combination of emotions of fear, of anger, and this rise of loneliness in the country. And mm. I, yeah. I, I think that so much of that ties to social media, all three of those emotions in, in the modern day. I mean, you, know, you look at the Roman Empire and these, maybe not so much loneliness, but fear and anger played a large role in the demise of the Roman Empire. So these emotions are not new, but I think that the way that we are living life today in 20, now 2019, it's becoming harder and harder to combat this. And when you look at addiction to technology, it makes it more difficult to kind of get out there. Look at like a game like Fortnite that was developed to breed addiction. Once you can get someone out of that climate of staring at a screen and scrolling and scrolling, there's some beautiful things that can happen. But I do think that it's becoming more difficult to do that. I spent some time at a dementia care unit in a suburb of Boston, and the people I've met there, the families who are 
living with dementia and Alzheimer's in their life, you see what really matters at the end of one's life, the love, the human connections, the relationships. Do you treat people well? Do you treat people kindly? And that's not a political thing. I mean, that's, you know, that's human. That's the root of being human. But the root of being human is not on social media. And clearly, we've both experienced this and seen this. The challenge is, how will you create an audience, develop a meaningful audience for this project? You know, so how are you navigating that as you continue to kind of do these these interviews, as you work behind the scenes to put this together in podcast form? That's been a really great question that I've been asking myself, and I'm glad you're asking. 15 second Instagram story sound bites, I don't think does justice to points that I'm trying to make. And it doesn't encapsulate the complexity of the situation going on. A lot of people, and this is, this is my fault. And I think a lot of people sometimes see controversial or difficult topics being addressed in a very short period of time or in a very small um, amount of text, and they're quick to criticize it. And so something that I'm trying to do, trying to release minute-long videos of me giving talks at universities, give the scope and complexity of the argument. It's not easy in a world that people want to spend a second going through Instagram or reading a tweet. There's sort of this snark Olympics on Twitter that I can't really participate in because I, I can make a quick point or win a quick little jab at somebody, but I'm not going to necessarily get them on my side or I'm not going to get people from both sides to sort of come to my point of view on an issue or bring people together. So it's been tough trying to find a way to do that. And when the podcast comes out in earnest in March, I'm hoping that these conversations with people speaking for themselves will allow people to practice that empathy muscle. The, I originally wasn't planning on doing this as a podcast. I was going to write a book, put it out there in the world. But I think it's really important that people have the opportunity to hear people different from themselves from different political parties, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from different races. I think once people hear people speaking and take away the filter of me relaying the stories, the authenticity of that conversation will register with people, hopefully. When I'm presenting a point of view, I'm just trying to give people the opportunity to experience the diversity of perspectives in this country because my political views hopefully will be non-existent from this project. But hopefully people will have their own political views challenged by these other experiences uh, that they're listening to. And if they walk away stronger in their political views because they listen to another point of view, I think that's an amazing thing. You know, obviously I have my biases, but I'm trying really hard to talk to people that either don't have a platform or will challenge my own uh, preconceived notions. Well, I can relate to everything you just said. And I do think that podcast form is one of the real mediums that is popular in today's world that allows for kind of in-depth, interesting, thought-provoking conversation to take place. I went to college with someone who you know from high school, and he's currently in Wyoming. You were working with him a little bit on the Wyoming logistics. But when we first uh, had a conversation, your stomach was not feeling well because you had just consumed a pretty excessive quantity of, if I'm remembering this properly, it was crab cakes and an ice cream social. 
That's that's correct. Yeah, I was in uh, Smyrna, Delaware, at a a church bazaar, and they had five dollar crab cakes, and I had about three, and I had uh, dumplings and homemade ice cream. So it's not all all work on this trip. We do get to do some of the fun things, like consuming too many crab cakes. As we start to close, every guest on Sanity, I ask, "What are you most optimistic about right here, right now, today?" I'm most optimistic about two things. The first is I think there's a great American consensus forming, even though the media and those in power, I believe, have it in their best interest to keep us divided. We actually agree on a lot more than I initially realized. There's a lot of issues that people, when you sit down and talk to them and help them unpack what they think, there's a lot of agreement. So I'm hopeful about that. But I think I'm most hopeful about the fact that in our cities and towns, from big cities to small towns, Boston to Milledgeville, Georgia, people have a real interest in making their places of work, their their homes, their downtowns, really exciting, dynamic places. I hope that at some point in the next few years, people start to move from LA, DC, New York. And they start rediscovering these small towns because you can really do a lot. You can be the one person in your community doing the thing you're passionate about. And if you're not there, maybe no one will do it. But if you live in some of these communities and you have an idea, man, there's going to be a lot of support behind you. There's going to be a lot of people saying to continue with ideas like yours to continue this upswing. So my hope is that this renaissance of our cities and towns continues. Mm. I went to high school in a college town in North Florida, and I really enjoyed that experience. And I think that there really is a renaissance of these mid-sized, smaller towns to mid-sized cities that is growing. And there's so much opportunity there. There are startup accelerators that are popping up in a lot of them. And I think that is really encouraging and is an excellent thing to be hopeful about. Ryan, it's been a pleasure. Where can listeners find out more about your project? So the best place to go right now is 550statesofmind.org. That's 550statesofmind.org. And there will be all the information about uh, the podcast, uh, the blog, how to get on the mailing list, and links to, unfortunately, social media. It's a love-hate relationship. It really is. It really is. This has been such a blast. I've enjoyed hearing about what you've been working on and it totally speaks to the spirit of sanity. Thank you so much, Audrey. And you're doing something really amazing here and I'm really honored to be a part of it. 